You're listening to audio from Grove Park Baptist Church. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.groveparkchurch.net. I'm reminded of the, the story of the camp, the tent meeting preacher who was preaching in the tent meeting and there was a little boy there and he'd just get up and he'd just take off around the tent and run and run and run and he didn't pay attention to where he was running and he ran smack dab into one of the tent poles and got knocked out cold. And the people went to him and the preacher said, don't go to him, leave him where the good Lord flung him. (laughs) I was waiting to see where Howard was going to fall out. Uh, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word now and turn to Mark chapter number 15. Mark 15, this morning we'll be looking at one verse, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Would you pray with me? Kind Father, we give you thanks today for joy and for hope and for love that we have celebrated already as we have worshiped. And Lord, as we focus our attention now upon your word, we pray, Lord, that it would speak to us grace upon grace. That it would challenge us, Lord, and that it would open us up to receipt of what you're trying to say to us. Lord, bless me with the words that are needed for those gathered here as we make our prayer. Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I realize that you can't tell it by the look of my desk, but I do like order. I like things to be in order. I, I don't like a lot of messiness. Which when I think of it in terms of grace is difficult because grace is by its very nature messy. It's uncontrollable. It goes everywhere. You know, uh, we don't like the messiness of it. We don't like the fact that, that in our life we always try to color within the lines and grace just takes us outside of the lines. Grace goes to the messiest parts of our life and there it works. It invades our lives by surprise as it enters through avenues that we don't anticipate or expect that leave us dumbfounded that God would use that particular situation, that particular thing, that particular person, that particular moment to bring grace. 
Our third image in these portraits of grace that we are looking at this Lenten season is one that I believe vividly displays an invasion of grace in all of its messy forms. Let us recall that in the interlude between the second and third image, Jesus has taken up his cross. He has taken up his cross and he has begun the short journey uphill to Golgotha. It is estimated that at most this journey was about half a mile. Most scholars believe though it was somewhere around three-tenths of a mile, approximately 650 yards. Jesus is to begin this journey of roughly six and a half football fields, carrying a cross that they think weighed somewhere between 80 and 100 pounds. And when we think about it, we think about this carpenter's son who has hauled wood probably his whole life. This doesn't seem like that hard of a deal, right? He can handle 650 yards carrying 80 to 100 pounds of wood, but let us not forget that Jesus isn't taking up his cross and carrying it up the hill under normal circumstances. He is without any sleep from the night before. He has been senselessly beaten and scourged by the Roman soldiers. His flesh has been torn to shreds. And that's just the physical. Let's not forget the emotional and psychological effects that Jesus must be facing. He knows he is going to death. He has watched his friends betray him and abandon him and deny him. And Christian tradition holds that just before Simon comes on the scene, Jesus has seen his mother for the first time. Imagine what it was like for him to see his mother who had endured so much because of him seeing him in this wretched state. Jesus is not on an easy journey. And understanding that enables us this morning to see the actions of the soldiers in this morning's text as an invasion of grace. These soldiers who have ridiculed, who have mocked, who have tortured, who have reviled, have a singular mission. They must get Jesus to death on Golgotha. He cannot die on the way. He must die on that cross. He must die as a symbol for all to see that you do not cross Rome. You do not cross the chief priest. He must be made an example for all. And so he can't die in some back alley on the way up the hill. He's got to die in public. And they will do anything to ensure that that happens. He must get to Golgotha. Now these are Roman soldiers. Romans could not be crucified. So of course, 
Jesus, I mean, one of them is not going to carry Jesus' cross. They're not going to take it up. It would be a mark of shame for them to take up the cross. So no, they, they just look around and they look for the first guy who looks physically capable of taking this cross 650 yards. They see Simon and they compel him to join Jesus on the journey to Calvary. And in doing so, they open the door to grace. You and I have rightfully vilified these soldiers for their previous actions against the Christ. And their motives here are nowhere close to pure as we have already seen. However, let us never be so mighty and so self-righteous that we refuse grace when it is offered to us from unexpected sources. We do not find in any of the gospels Jesus saying, no, I can carry this cross. We do not find Jesus saying anywhere, I don't need Simon. He doesn't say to the soldiers, don't give me your pity, I can handle it. He just simply hands the cross over. Beloved, there must be some level of humility in our lives when grace invades. There must be some level of humility that we cannot overlook to properly receive it in all of its forms. The question is for us though, do we ever exercise such humility? Or because we can't, we refuse grace. I was reminded recently of a church that got hit by a tornado. And there was a casino down the road from them. The church was wiped off the map. And the casino offered them $50,000 for their rebuilding fund. And the church said, no. Now, some of us might say, well, good for them, right? But beloved, think about that. Who knows that God didn't impress into their hearts to do that, to help that church with its building. But because its means didn't come from a way that they necessarily liked, they turned it down. Now everyone has to operate under their own convictions. I'm not disputing that. But I am saying that maybe, maybe, when grace invades from unexpected sources, it's how God teaches us humility. It's how God teaches us humility because in indeed humility ultimately shows us our need for grace. The Roman soldiers have been completely graceless. Their motives for drafting Simon to carry the Lord's cross are all wrong. But let us also remember that where grace invades, it is where God begins to bring good out of evil. And doesn't God always working to bring good out of evil? 
Isn't it we find in Romans where he says that he makes all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Isn't it where Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God made it good after he had to go through all of the horrors of Potiphar's house and, the, and, and Pharaoh's prison? God made it good through grace and various forms from people he never expected. Beloved, let us always understand that the source of grace is always God, no matter who the means of grace brings it. Let us also understand another thing. I am sure that Simon did not think much of this invasion of grace in his own life. He was minding his own business, it would seem from the text. He's coming in from out of the country, literally out of the fields. He doesn't know about this trumped up trial. He doesn't know about all that's been going on probably in Jerusalem. All he knows is that he's walking up and suddenly a Roman soldier grabs him and says, carry this cross. Simon, who is a long way from home. Cyrene is in North Africa, over near Libya. Simon, who some scholars think that they grabbed him because he wasn't even a Jew. He was maybe dressed like a Roman. Although Cyrene had a large, sizable Jewish community, and so I don't think that argument holds up. But we don't know why they chose him. We just know that they did. And we know that he became an instrument of grace to Jesus. What an honor to give grace to the giver of grace. As he carried Jesus' cross up Calvary's hill. The question as we think on this, beloved, becomes twofold. First, do you and I respond when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and compels us to do something for someone, to extend grace to someone? Or do you and I push it aside and ascribe it to less spiritual reasons? I have a friend, he, he'll say this to me from time to time. He says, either God spoke to me or the pizza I had last night was bad and I'll find out in about five days. You and I will use other words. We will say it is by coincidence. You and I will say that it is by happenstance. You and I will say any other number of things to get us off the hook of being an extension of grace. But are we open to it? Now you may also say this morning that there is no compulsion of the Holy Spirit in Simon's life, he was forced by Romans to take up this cross. And so that leads me to a second question. Are you fully present in the situations of life to even be aware that someone needs grace? 
Are you fully present in every moment of your life that you are aware of what is going on around you? You are aware of your surroundings. You're aware of the people around you to the point that you know whether or not you are to be an extension of grace. Or do you simply say, it's none of my business and move on? We go all the way back to the beginning of mankind and we find Cain asking that famous of all questions, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer from God again and again and again and again and again throughout all of history has been yes. Yes. It is how grace invades graceless places. And you and I must always be alert for how we can help someone, how we can help a brother or a sister, how we can help someone we don't even know and bring grace to their life. Abraham Lincoln once told a story of a boy struggling up a hill, carrying a smaller child. The boy was asked by a passerby whether the Heavy burden was too much for him to bear. And the young boy looked back and said, it's not a burden, it's my brother. Oh, beloved, this morning, do we understand that everywhere we see someone struggling, everywhere we see someone in need of grace, whether that be in East Baltimore, in East Burlington, or East Timor, that they are our brother and our sister. And that it is not a burden. It is not a burden. It is a call upon our life to give them grace and to open ourselves up for even further receipt of grace as we give grace. Because grace abounds. When we do this, when we open ourselves up for the invasion of grace, when we open ourselves up to what God is attempting to do through us, we never understand the impact that it can have further down the line. Did you notice what seems to be something absolutely superfluous in the text today? And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. All this is important, right? All this is important. And then he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Who cares? Right? Who cares about Alexander and Rufus? Nothing in God's word is superfluous. Mark is famous for these asides. Jesus is in the boat and he says he's asleep on a little pillow. Who cares? I had a friend of mine call me up the other day. He was reading the crucifixion account in Mark and he said, who is the guy who is wearing white linen and runs away naked and why did Mark put it in there? I said, I don't know. I'm waiting, still trying to figure out what color the cushion is he's asleep on in the boat. Why is Rufus and Alexander even mentioned? Let's just take for a moment and remember something. 
And it is believed that John Mark recorded his gospel for use by the church in Rome. And if we were to skip over to the epistle to the Romans, there in the 16th chapter, we would find at the end Paul sending a greeting to Rufus and his mother. In that long list of, there at the end of Romans, you know that list that we all skip over. But there in the end is Rufus and his mother. Is there sufficient evidence for us to definitively say that the Rufus here is the Rufus there? No. But Christian tradition holds that Rufus and Alexander became missionaries. And furthermore, if we were to go over to, to Acts chapter 11, we would find that there are men of Cyrene who take the gospel to Antioch and give it to the Greeks for the first time. And that's where Paul really began his ministry with Barnabas. And so if Rufus is already there, or maybe even Simon, since he's a man of Cyrene too, he may have brought his wife along. Maybe that's how Paul knows Rufus's mother. And maybe this all ties up nicely. And I realize that it's all conjecture, but Here's what I do believe clear from the text in Mark, that somehow or another the encounter between Jesus and Simon on the cross for those 650 yards changed Simon's life so much that it changed his children's life. And whether those children were at Antioch, whether those children at Rome, I don't know. But just for a minute, think how it would all be different if they are. And Simon had said no to the invasion of grace. Think on the impact on Rufus's life. Think on the impact of the Antioch church. Think on the impact of Paul's ministry. Think on the impact of Christian missions. Think on the impact of the Roman church. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Beloved, you and I never will know this side of glory, the impact of our allowing grace to invade our lives and for us to be the giver of grace to someone else, the impact that it has on people we don't even know. And so while I cannot prove, while I cannot prove for sure that Rufus and Alexander are found elsewhere in the scriptures. I want to share with you an instance where grace invaded, and I do know that to be true. You see, Edward Kimball was the young men's Sunday school teacher at Mount Vernon Congregational Church in Boston, Massachusetts. He got a young man who was only coming to Sunday school and church as a condition of his work as a, a down at a shoe shop. He was only coming for that reason. He got that young man in Sunday school. That young man didn't know, didn't know Genesis from Revelation. He had, didn't even really own a Bible. He didn't know much about God or anything like that. And as as Kimball was teaching one Sunday, he told him to turn to John and he sees the kid over there with the Bible just frantically and he doesn't want him to, to look bad. He doesn't want him to look 
poorly in front of the other students. And so Kimball just hands him his Bible very nonchalantly, very quietly. Did you see that little bit of grace right there? Did you see that little offer of grace right there? Oh, the boy started searching the word. The boy started coming to terms with all of this. And suddenly, Kimball feels impressed upon his heart to go share the gospel with the boy and ask him, is he ready to receive Jesus? And so Kimball's never done this before. And so he's walking down the street in in, uh, Boston. He's actually walking down Tremont Street in Boston. And and he's debating whether or not he should really do this. Should he go into the the boy's place of work and and give him the gospel? And he's he's nervous. He's never done this, remember. He's real scared about this this whole grace thing. And he's worried and he, he goes down the street He passes the shoe shop, and as he passes the shoe shop, he says, oh, it must be nothing. God wasn't speaking to him. He said, but the Spirit of God kept on him, and so he turned around very quickly, ran in the shoe store, and went to the clerk, and he said he gave the poorest gospel delivery ever, but at the end he said, son, do you want to know Jesus? And the boy said, yes. And Dwight Moody came to saving faith. Dwight Moody, the great 19th century evangelist who would start Moody Church. Now, beloved, it'd be great if the story ended there. But Moody went over to England to where he went to, to pastor uh, F.B. Meyer's church. And you know, F.B. Meyer was one of those great Englishmen, you know, one of those nice uptight Englishmen. And, and, My, and uh, Moody was a guy from probably like Richlands. I mean, he was just an old country boy. Didn't really speak good English. Definitely didn't speak the Queen's English. And he's up there preaching. Myers thinking to himself, oh, what have I gotten myself into? What have I gotten myself into? A couple weeks later, he goes to visit a, a woman and the woman says, Pastor, wasn't Brother Moody great? He has set my soul a fire. And F.B. Meyer said it changed his ministry, that he learned right then the language of the soul. And Meyer went out far and wide as an evangelist, bringing thousands to Jesus from that ill-spoken shoe clerk. It'd be great if it stopped there. But Meyer was preaching one day in the United States at a Bible college, and he was talking about being open to God. And he said, some of you are ready to give up. Some of you are tired, and you just don't even think that you have the energy to keep working for God. But would you even say to God, God, I am willing to open my heart. I'm not sure I can go do it yet, but I'm willing to open my heart to working for you. And there was a boy sitting in the back who was tired and ready to give up on school, ready to give up on the ministry. And he's sitting in the back and he said, yes, Lord, I'm willing to do that. And so Wilbur Chapman came into the gospel ministry. Wilbur Chapman became one of the great evangelists. And while he was going far and wide across the country, he came upon a young man who he began to mentor and to teach. And when it came time for him to retire, he gave his whole ministry over to this young man whose name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday, again, one of the great revivalists of American history. 
went to preach revival in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1924 that shook Charlotte to the point where a prayer group began. And they met for over a decade praying that God would not only bring revival again to Charlotte, but he would bring revival to this country. And they earnestly sought God to send another great revival. And while they did that, there came a preacher by the name of Mordecai Ham who went preaching in Charlotte. And one night while he was preaching, a young boy who grew up on a dairy farm outside of Charlotte was fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and walked the aisle and gave his life to Jesus Christ. You and I haven't heard of that young man, but the rest of the world has. His name's Billy Graham. Oh, beloved, it all started with one man who was willing to let grace invade his life Grace invade and do something remarkable and it changed the world. You see, the invasion of grace is when God takes nobodies like Edward Kimball and he makes them somebodies in the kingdom of God. And the question for us today is are you willing to let grace invade? Are you willing to let it invade your life and through you invade someone else's life and change them. Simon took the cross and changed the world. Will you do the same today? Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, Lord, we ask that you would speak to every heart here and that you would show, Lord, to every heart where it is that they need grace, where it is you want to work grace, and that, Lord, that they would open themselves up to that. And maybe today, Lord, they can't, they can't quite commit to that. And so I'm going to ask, Lord, that they do the same thing that, 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 that Chapman did, that they would say, Lord, I'm, I'm open to it. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know how to do it, but I'm open to you working in my life. And that, Lord, by doing that, we would receive grace, extend grace, show grace, and move in the river of grace. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.